Tim Keller, in his uh, book, Hidden Christmas, uh, observes that Christmas is the only Christian holiday that is also a major secular holiday. This means we actually have two celebrations happening around the world at one time, observed by two different groups of people. In the red corner, if you like, we have Christians. There, we celebrate Christmas as the first advent, the first coming into the world of God, our creator, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we, are, we celebrate it, right? In the, in the blue corner, if you like, uh, we have, uh, so it has red and blue sound a bit like the elections. <laughs> it's bad. Peata should have said we are in the blue corner. <laughs> in, the, in the blue corner, we have the non-Christians, right? For them, Christians uh, is mainly uh, a time to, Christmas is mainly a time to party, a time to exchange gifts with one another and spend time with loved ones. That's what, for many people, Christmas is about. And I think that secular view of Christmas is a dominant view in the UK now, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, it's, been, it's been rising in dominance and it's come to now dominate. This is what the country thinks Christmas is when we speak to friends. To them, that's what Christmas is about. And it's quite obvious. How do I know? We just go around the shops. Um, the music in our supermarkets tells us what people think Christmas is about. And uh, it's not Silent Night I hear when I'm at Sainsbury's. It tends to be Jingle Bells or Have a Jolly Christmas or perhaps one of Eddie Sheeran's classics or something like that uh, to do with Christmas. And it seems every year Christmas seems to come early in the shops, doesn't it? And this has been called Christmas Creep. One man is not happy about this. He says, you know, I find Christmas a maddening experience. When November comes, I'm already sick and tired of it. You know, he's not alone. I thought about that man's words, and I realized that I'm perhaps also in the same boat. I was telling my wife on Monday that since I became a pastor, I find Christmas, to be honest, one of the worst times of the year. I told her that I dread the busyness of Christmas. I dread the tiredness of Christmas. I have tended to find little joy. It's tended to be a very hectic time. I'm barely reflecting on Jesus as I should do. And I, I enjoyed life much more around Christmas time when I, I guess when I was young, <laughs> right? Uh, but when I didn't necessarily have these responsibilities. My wife responded to me, of course, that that's sad. And she posed the question, are you not meant to rejoice because of the birth of Jesus? And of course, I responded with a theological answer. I said, I do rejoice in his birth. I am a Christian because of his birth, but not in the Christmas period. Of course, my wife was here. She's, of course, right. So I would say she's right. She's here, right? And the key, she, as she put it, to having a good Christmas, as she would have hinted in that answer, she, question she posed to me, I think what she was hinting at is, you can ask her later, I think the key to having a good Christmas is keeping Christ front and center of our Christmas celebration. It is remembering that Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Jesus, our Lord. If we keep that front and center, I think we would have a good Christmas. If we don't, well, you could be gloomy like me, or you could have other sorts of feelings you have. You could completely miss it. And what I thought I should do for the next three Sundays, basically, is to encourage you to enjoy this Christmas properly by helping you reflect 
on this important question. And the question I want you to think about is this. How are we supposed to respond to the coming of Jesus in the world? How are we supposed to respond to the birth of Jesus? And to help us do this, um, I want us to go through those three sermons in Matthew and beginning with the first sermon here. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 25 this this morning. And I just want to make three observations. This is the first gospel account, the gospel of Matthew, like Mark, which, which we are going through um, Sunday after Sunday. It also is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And here we are, Matthew tells us about the birth of Christ. And there are just two, th- three things I just want us to observe about the birth of Jesus and how we should respond to it. The first thing is that the birth of Jesus is unique. There's nothing like it. The birth of Jesus is unique. Every baby born is unique, but the birth of Jesus is stands alone. Stands alone. That's the first point I want you to see here. Now, earlier this year, the mayor of a town in Poland made news. And uh, why did he make news? He made news because he was offering a reward to the first couple in the town who give birth to a boy. Sadly, I can't pronounce the name of the town, so just take my word for it. Uh, It's a town, you can Google it up. The mayor of this small town said, the first couple in the town to have a baby boy, he will give them uh, a reward of some sort. Why would he do that? Well, apparently, this small town only has a population of 300, and there are no male babies that have been born in that town for many, many years. Some say decades, others say 14, 15 years. Only girls are born in the town. One resident says, it's been going on for decades. I came to the village, took a local girl for my wife. We had two daughters. I would like to have a son, but it's unrealistic. My neighbor also tried and has two daughters. Perhaps two is a thing there. I don't think women give birth to boys here. Uh, it's Poland, uh, and I'm sure the women have responded. But maybe it's making a fact that, that, um, that, that, that he believes to be true for the town. He says he doesn't think women give birth to boys in that particular local town. And as we think about that local town, a male child in that town would bring hope, joy, not just for the parents, but for the mayor. Right? Um, this would be a special birth. That boy, if he was to be born in that town, would change the trajectory, I'm sure, of the town. It would become to be filled of hope for the future. At the moment, they are very gloomy. Well, Matthew here, in this passage, also tells us about the birth of a baby that is special, that brings hope, that will change the course, not just of a local town, Nazareth or Bethlehem, but the course of human history. This is the most special baby that has ever been born because his name is Jesus. Let's read verse 18 there. Now the birth of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let's just pause there and note that long ago God had promised his people Israel that he would send them the Christ, the Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying Christ is Jesus' surname. No. 
Christ is a title. And, and this baby that God was going to send, this person God was going to send in the world, was going to be the Messiah. He was going to come to serve, to, to serve and rule the world forever. He will be the Messiah, the Savior. Not just of Israel, but the Savior of all who put their trust in him. Now, people say the environmental activist Greta Thunberg suffers from a messiah complex. You can Google it. They do. They say she suffers from a messianic complex. What do they mean by that? They mean that she hops from plane to plane, attend conference to conference, like someone carrying the word of the world on her shoulder. I'm not the one saying this. I just read it on Google. You can speak to Siri. Siri will get you there. Or speak to Alexa, and Alexa will help you find uh, where this is. But they say she wants to save everyone. They see her as a green messiah, as a political messiah. Well, she's not the messiah. The real messiah is this baby in Mary's womb. He has come to carry the world on his shoulder, literally. And you'll be able to do this because this baby in the womb of Mary is God coming to be a mangus. You see, we read in verse 18 there that when his mother Mary, the mother of Jesus, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary has been busy making wedding plans to marry Joseph. But God the Spirit has decided to interfere. He has decided to enter her womb and within the womb of Mary started knitting baby Jesus inside of her. Now this baby that the Spirit of God is knitting inside the womb of Mary is 100% human. Baby Jesus has all Mary's DNA. is going to be a normal male Jewish baby. And as he's in the womb, he'll be doing all the th wonderful things that babies do in the womb. He'll be, you know, moving his toes and everything, his limbs and stretching. Babies do all of that stuff in the womb. 100% human. And at the same time, this baby in the womb is also 100% God. Because this baby, you see, is the Holy Spirit of a shadowing Mary, so to speak, and within the womb, preparing Mary's womb as a bridal chamber, so to speak, for God the Son to enter, as it were, and be born through Mary's womb. This baby in Mary's womb is God the Son. We say God is one in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The three are one. And the person in Mary's womb now is God the Son. You see, the baby in Mary's womb created all things, including the womb of Mary. And all the things were created for his glory alone. Think for a moment the claims of Christianity. You should, take, you should think about them. But the Bible is telling us that the baby inside Mary's womb can command nature. He can give life. Demons will flee at his presence. This baby in the womb has the power to forgive sins. He is God. This is the earth-shaking truth of Christmas. 
In fact, this is the foundation of Christianity. The Bible tells us that on that first Christmas, God became a fetus and grew inside Mary's virgin womb. Why would God become a fetus? Why would he who made the whole universe decide to wear my flesh and need his umbilical cord broken? He did it because he loves me. He did it because he loves you. He came to seek you out. He wants you so much he has decided to put on your skin in order to be with you forever. Christmas says God has arrived for you. And Christmas poses this question, have you welcomed Jesus? Do you know this baby in Mary's womb personally? Have you surrendered to him? Now, it's a big claim, isn't it? It's a big claim. It's big. It's not small. Very big. It is so big that many people, of course, doubt that. Many people doubt God has come in Jesus. And maybe as you sit here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, well, you know. Um, to be honest, I'm kind of struggling with that. It seems unusual to me. It sounds like a lie. Is that you this morning? If that is you, it's good you're honest about that. It's good you're honest about that. Because it's a big truth. You, we can't just take it off. We need to process this. This is big. And so if you're having doubts, I have good news for you this morning. Because you are not alone in your doubts. Even Joseph found it hard to believe when he first received the news. And this brings us to the second truth we learn here. The first truth is that the birth of Jesus is unique. The second truth is that the birth of Jesus is so unique, so unusual, it sounds like a lie. It sounds like a lie. It sounded like a lie to Joseph. That's the second point. Let's, let's read on. After Mary tells Joseph she's pregnant, Joseph doesn't believe her story. He doesn't believe this baby is from God. And perhaps as you sit here this morning, you are in that position. You are doubting just like Joseph is doubting. And Joseph goes further. He decides to call it quits. Let's read verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He resolved to divorce her quietly. And we all know why, don't we? Because the key word here is shame. Did you pick that up? Unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This unwelcome pregnancy, so to speak, of Mary, from Joseph's perspective, has brought shame to Mary and to Joseph. Why is that? Because Mary is betrothed to Joseph. I told you that word will be back, right? What does that mean? What does it mean to be betrothed to Joseph, right? Well, in their culture, being betrothed is more than just having an engagement to someone. It is actually a legal agreement between family. In this culture, if you are betrothed to someone, the only thing that's waiting for here is Joe and Mary for them to get married. That's all, that is, that's, that's all they're waiting for. It has all been signed, dotted, and sealed. They're just waiting for the wedding celebration and moving in together. 
There is no return from this position. It's deeper than an engagement. Families have agreed, everything is done. Honeymoon booked, it's all, you know, ready to go, right? But tragedy has struck. Mary is pregnant and Joseph is not the father. Big problem. Jeremy Cow style problem. So what do we expect Joseph to do? Well, we expect him to do what the thing that any man would do in this position, frankly. To bring the whole thing to a stop fast. But Joseph has a problem here. He, 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 he still loves Mary, so to speak, we might say. And he has concerns for her. And he's concerned that if he breaks up with her, everyone will know. And the punishment for what Mary is going through here in this society is stoning death. And you can picture him pacing up and down. He's thinking to himself, if I go public and throw her under the bus, she'll be abused by everyone and definitely stoned. What should I do? I can't marry this woman because I, I have a feeling she's cheated on me. But if I tell everyone, she dies, possibly. She could be stoned to death. You remember that story of a woman who was caught in adultery who trying to stone her in the scriptures. So Joseph has come up with a plan of divorcing her quietly. That's what he's come up with. Being a just man and willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The point I want you to see here, friends, is this. The main point is that the main character of this story so far, Joseph, the father of the family to be, does not believe Mary's baby is God in human form. You need to let that sink in. When he hears the story of Jesus being born, that God is coming into the world, he doesn't believe it. The Bible isn't written as sort of trying to fit facts in so that you can come to a view. It just tells you as it is, as it happened. And here we see Joseph reacts the way we expect him to react. He does not believe it. In that sense, he's perhaps in the same position as some of you here this morning. When Joseph thinks of the virgin birth, the whole idea of the virgin birth, to him it's nothing more than a shameful lie. It's a shameful lie that Mary has made up to cover our shame of sleeping around. And this is sadly the view of many people who celebrate Christmas. The people, if you like, in the blue corner. And it might be the view of some of you here this morning. Yes, I know you don't use the words shameful lie. But if you refuse to surrender your life to Jesus, then you believe that Jesus is not God in human form. And by extension, you believe, I know you've never thought, you've never thought about it like that, I appreciate that, but you believe that the birth of Jesus is nothing more than a shameful lie. And in a way, that is the proper way of thinking about it. I think that's the right way to think about it. Because you see, if this baby in Mary's womb is not God, if there is no virgin birth, then Christmas is despicable. Christmas is shameful to even have it celebrated if the virgin birth is not true. Why do I say that? Well, because people have died for this baby. 
In two weeks from now, you'll read about Herod slaughtering infants on account of getting rid of this baby. Other babies died because of this baby. Many believers today around the world are dying because of this baby. Believing him to be God. Others have abandoned careers for this baby. Others live destitute for this baby. Others give their money, their hope for this baby. If this baby is not God, then the whole thing is a corn skin. It's despicable. The human calendar is named after, is structured around this baby. 2000 of what? 2000 in the year of our Lord. Which Lord? This baby. This society has been built on the moral foundation because of this baby. The golden rule and the Ten Commandments, all of them come down to this baby. Do you see what I'm getting at? I hope you see what I'm getting at. If Jesus is not God, then this is not an innocent lie. It is a shameful lie. And all of us here are complicit. Do you see? You and I cannot be neutral about Mary's baby boy. And I find it a height of hypocrisy for those who do not know Jesus to even celebrate Christmas because once they understood the implication of Christmas, though it should immediately conclude it's a shameful lie from their perspective, they don't believe in him, and actually withdraw from Christmas completely. Not even using it. Because you and I cannot be neutral about this baby in Mary's womb. It is either Jesus is God and you surrender your life to him, or you totally divorce yourself from Christmas because it is a shameful lie. I just want to pause. And by the way, for those who have truly understood this truth of Christmas, it has changed their life. The disciples left everything to follow Jesus. So even for those who profess to know something of Jesus, once you understood this, it's a game changer. It changes everything. How you live, everything. So, 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 the question for you this morning is this. It's either Jesus is God and you surrender to him completely or you totally divorce yourself from Christmas because it is a shameful lie. But let us not occupy some middle position here. And the question I want to pose to you is, what do you believe? Do you believe in this baby in Mary's womb is God or not? Well, he is God. He is who he claims to be. And you must believe in him. Why? Well, because of the final observation I just want to make for you this morning. The final observation is this. The birth of Jesus is the best news ever. Unique baby, right? That's the first point. Yes, it's unusual. It sounds like a lie. That's the second point. But here's the thing. This coming of Jesus in the world is the best news ever. Let's rejoin Joseph there. Uh, he's pacing up and down in his house. Uh, Joseph wants to divorce Mary, but God has other plans. Let's read on. Verse 20. But as he, that is Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
The angel is saying to the fearful Joseph, Mary is carrying God in her womb. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Go ahead and marry her and you'll never regret it. Let's read on verse 21. Why would you not regret it? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Wow. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21 tells us what the name Jesus means. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. The angel is saying the purpose of God entering our world is to save us from sin. In fact, we should say the purpose of God coming into our world is to save us from God. Because we have sinned against God and the wrath of God is upon us. All of us are sinners and we need this baby. Suppose you go on holiday, right? And you leave your house in the hands of a friend to look after it, right? You do that. You trust her with all your possessions. Then while you are gone, she moves in and she takes possession of that house. She lives there. Uh, she even informs the council, HMRC, change all your bank details. They're all in her name. That flat now becomes hers. And she's having parties. She's going to... Uh, bowling with the friends and uh, Benji's, whatever, you know, having nice meals and she invites some eminent friends over there to come in, etc., etc., right? They are having a wonderful time, eating nice food. And then what does she do? She finally sends you a message via WhatsApp. She says, don't ever come back. You have no home here. This is mine now. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible's word for what she has just done is sin. Sin is lawlessness. It is actually living your life the way you want to live, without any care for God. Sin is saying to God, I am my own boss now. Every time you sin, you're telling God to get out, get lost, and never come back. Every sin is personal treason against God, against the sovereign Lord. Which makes Every single one of us here, including the kids over there, traitors before this God. Because there's no one in this building, there's no one in this world who can say they put God first. I don't always put God first. You don't always put God first. Right? All of us break his commandments. The truth of the matter is that we are not good people. That's what the Bible says. We tell lies, we gossip, we envy, we lust after other people. You do not love as you should. This is your CV, this is my CV. All of us are sinners. And you know what, we're not just one of sinners. Sin is our natural identity. We have been born into sin since the day of Adam. We live, dream, and eat sin. It has been that way. There's no point of denying it like I'm telling you something that you don't know. Just take the Ten Commandments and check for yourself. Go, go, go to Colossians, read chapter 3. See the many sins listed there. You'll find that you are a sinner. And if you look at your own life, you'll conclude with me that none of us really put God first. We live for me, myself, and I. And because you and I are sinners, the Bible says we've been sentenced to eternal punishment to help. But the good news of this baby, and that's why we need this baby, is that this baby is 
God bringing us hope. Let's read verse 21 to 23 again. We need to know the bad news so that we can appreciate this good news. Verse 21 to 23 says this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken, had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel is saying, Christmas is God saying to us, you have broken my law, you have rebelled against me, you deserve to suffer in hell forever, but I have come to pay the penalty for your sin. I have come to wear your flesh. I have come to walk to the cross to pay the penalty that you deserve. Christmas is God being the doctor, isn't it? He's diagnosed your problem and he's offered himself as a solution. He's saying, I have come to do this, die for you, so that you, by you accepting my death for, for you, you can now go free, you can live with me forever. I am doing this for you. I am your Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the wonderful news of Christmas. I frankly don't know why both oppose this at all. It's wonderful news. Jesus is God entering this sin-stained world to endure the stench of sin and die on the cross for me. And the question is, how should each one of us here this morning respond to this? Well, God wants each one of us to do what Joseph does here. Welcome the baby. I mean, when the baby is born, that's what we do in our families. I have never met a parent who just like, they don't want the baby. I mean, it happens, but God wants us to welcome this baby Jesus. And that's what Joseph does. Look at verse 24 to 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph is obeying God and takes on himself the responsibility and the cost of raising Jesus as his own son. He's taking on himself the shame of Mary. This woman who the town thinks is, a, is an adulterer and has cheated on him, etc., Joseph embraces her now. He accepts that this is God coming into the world. So I just want to point out here that what Joseph has done is costly. This isn't just saying the sinner's prayer, as some people think being a Christian is. No, this is costing Joseph. You can already hear the gossip of the town. Imagine if you were Joseph in your family. What would people say? Ooh, look what our bad relative Joseph has done, you know. He's taken on that woman, that thing they will probably call Mary. They will not invite you to their Christmas dinners anymore. If this was happening to you. So the, Joseph is doing this at great cost to himself. And as we read through the pages, it's going to get worse and worse because Herod is going to be after him and all the rest of it. He's going to suffer for this baby, right? But Joseph is surrendering to Jesus. Is welcoming the baby. And this is what Christmas demands from each one of us. It demands that we welcome Jesus. But listen to me carefully. It demands that we welcome Jesus 
not as a tick box exercise, but knowing full well the cost involved. Did you hear that? You must welcome Jesus knowing it will cost you. And this is the bit that people have a problem with. No one has any issues with Jesus dying for them, as long as we continue living as we please. None of us do. What people, what the world have a problem with Jesus is what Joseph understands. To truly have Jesus in our lives means death to self. I must live for Jesus now, even suffering for Jesus. And this is hard. I don't think we should skate over this at all. Following Jesus may result in loss of friends. It would put you at odds even in families. It would mean at school being unpopular. It may change how you spend your money. It may change your priorities. It could it alters careers, as I say, for some people. Imagine a prostitute coming to Jesus. That, no more business. The life changes. And we must think about this very carefully because, friends, many people, I have seen it in churches, even here, especially here. Many come so close, so close to surrendering to Jesus, so close, but they never do. They never do. I don't mean they don't become members. They even become church members and be baptized. But they never really surrender and be born again. Right? Because they have not yet understood this point. They have not yet understood that Jesus must demand total surrender. Of course, we go on to grow in surrendering. But they have not shifted that the center of gravity of their living has changed now. It's about Jesus. And many people become so close to Jesus that they never do this because they find that it's simply too difficult. This death to self, this accepting, I am a sinner and my life now must be lived for him. I surrender for Jesus. Wow. It's difficult. And maybe as you sit here this morning, by the way, can I just say, and churches, frankly, we have done a disservice by underplaying this. And that's why our churches are very weak in general, because we underplay this point. We need to appreciate this is hard, what we are asking people to do. Only God can bring it about. Only God can truly make someone born again. And maybe you are in this position, you know the Bible is true. You believe Jesus is God, but you are still weighing up whether to surrender to him. You know what? I like that. I like people weighing up things. I am worried when I meet people and they are so confident they have weighed it up. They have ticked the box. I want people to wear up. God wants you to wear this up. Nicodemus weighed it up. You must wear up what's being talked about here because it requires careful thinking. Because you see, many people, as I said, who follow Jesus are not Christians at all. Because they, have sim they simply live for themselves. So there's been no change that has occurred in their life. Nothing. And such people, frankly, have ticked the box and they're deluded 
and they're deluded heading to hell. God doesn't want you to join them, so I'm with you. Think hard about what's involved. God doesn't want you to, to, to just join the crowd. He wants you to be truly born again. He wants you to count the cost. First of all, he wants you to know that following Jesus is going to cost you. There will be costs in your life. But it's going to be worth it. He wants you to know there are costs, but he also wants you to know that the benefits of following Jesus are going to be worth it. The benefits infinitely outweigh the costs. When you surrender to Jesus, you now have God living in you and you believing in God. You have access to all his power in your life. In every situation, in every circumstance you find yourself in, Jesus will be there for you. He wants you to know that you have his comfort. You will have his peace. You will have his joy. Yes, you have lowered down, but you know that you'll be there as a constant friend with you. He wants you to know that you'll never face life by yourself anymore. He'll be there to guide, to nature, to protect, to provide for all your needs. And he wants you to know about the eternal blessings that lies ahead of you, beyond this world. They are too great for us to even begin to imagine and put it into words. What will it be like for you to live with God, to see his face every day? What will it be for you to enjoy the beams of his majesty, his light, his grace every day? It is beyond imagining. We, we, I can't put it to you in words because I have the same hope of seeing that. And consider what you will not experience as a result of being with Jesus forever. You will not suffer hell. You will not experience the terrible darkness that you deserve for your sin. You will not suffer eternal torment at the hands of a powerful God. What instead awaits you is glory like you have never seen before. So yes, count the cost. And I said to you, I plead with you, accept the cost for Jesus. Because the benefits outweigh the cost. Surrender to him genuinely. Not some tick box that says, please, please, do not join the crowd. Come to Jesus and just surrender to him. Welcome Jesus, as Joseph does, by laying down your life to him. Give him your life today. And of course, God gives you his church to nature and support you in that walk with him. But it must be real. It must be true repentance. And maybe you are trusting in Jesus, and like me, you find yourself less infused about Christmas. You are tempted just to get through it, as I've been trying to. We're all tempted and there are many reasons for that. Maybe you have some difficulty in your home or at work or your friends and whatever it is. And sometimes with those problems, Christmas can seem hollow, isn't it? You're a mom trying to make everything happen and you, it can all become quite, you can begin to dread the whole thing. <coughs> it might just be illness, a physical, mental health issue that just is not getting better. It makes Christmas rather difficult. It is easy for all of us in all of these things to want more than Christmas. Christmas is good, but we need more than Christmas. But Jesus is saying, no, Christmas is sufficient. He says, Christmas is saying, I became a man to be with you. And because you have surrendered your life to me, I am with you. I wear your flesh. Even now in heaven, I'm wearing your flesh. 
Jesus is saying to you, look, stop and consider who I am that promises to be with you. I am the God who created the world and rules over all creation. I rule over every star, every mountain, every grain of sand, every ocean, every desert. I am the God who millions of angels worship. Jesus is saying, I am a God whose glory and holiness is beyond comprehension. I am Jesus, your Emmanuel, the Lord of Christmas. I am God with you. Jesus is saying, you have no reason to worry or doubt him. No matter what the world has put on your plate, if you trust in Jesus, this Christmas, welcome him afresh. Affirm your trust in him. Tell Jesus how thankful you are for his coming into the world. 